If you have a copy of Scripture with you this evening, I would invite you to open up to Psalm 73, right there almost in the middle of the Psalms. Um, It's one of my favorite Psalms, as evidenced by the coffee stain in my Bible here. So Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked each morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. But nevertheless, I am continually with you, You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Some of, as some of you know, um, I came to Christ later in life, and as a result, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't have the experience of coming to church each week and reciting familiar songs reciting familiar Bible verses, repeating the same phrases week in and week out. And I've noticed that there's a value in this repetition, that in repeating the same things over and over, it helps form a church's identity. It helps leave a mark on the members within a church. And it can happen that we repeat these things so often that they almost become second nature. They almost become as familiar as saying hello. And each church has different phrases and songs that are special to them. Well, one of my favorite examples of this uh, is when a pastor at a church says, God is good, 
and then the con... And all the time? I, see, I was scared of what would happen after the handshake incident, and so I wasn't going to make you do it, but thank you. Um, it's one of, my favorite, one of my favorite things. There's so much joy filled in that phrase. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And, you know, just imagine growing up in a church and hearing that good news week in and week out. Each week you shout all the time, God is good. And perhaps you take it for granted. Perhaps it's something that, you know, you don't really think about. Maybe you don't fully understand, but it sounds good. Uh, you hear it when you're young, you repeat it, and it's just something you blindly repeat week in and week out. But imagine that that kid grows up. That kid that blindly repeats this phrase grows up and goes out into the world. And he's met with a world in which he experiences corruption, anxiety, suffering, abuse, injustice, and all the things that ail us. See, it was easy to confess that God was good as a child, but now that they're grown up, now that they're out in the real world, it's a little bit harder to repeat those words. And that's the dilemma that the psalmist finds himself in tonight. He's finding it difficult to hold on to his old belief in God's goodness. And it's as if he's asking, how can I confess that God is good when all I seem to experience is injustice and suffering while I look out and I see the wicked flourish? And yet, amid his disillusionment, Amid his doubt and amid his despair, God breaks into this psalm to show him and to show us the truth beyond what we see and shows us that because of Christ, we can have confidence that God is both good and just and that he is near to his suffering people in a wicked world. And so we're going to look at that flow tonight under three headings. We're going to look at what we see, what we miss, and how to see clearly. So beginning with what we see, verse 1 opens with this statement, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. These would have been familiar words to the psalmist. Many scholars believe that this was likely a prayer or a song that we would have grown up singing or reciting in the temple. And it would have been an expression of faith, an expression of trust, an expression of joy. But when he's repeating the phrase here, he's doing something a little bit different. You see, instead of expressing it as a statement of trust, he's holding it up like a lawyer examining a claim in court. It's as if he's saying, tradition, tradition says that God is good to Israel, that God is good to the pure in heart. But do these words hold up under scrutiny? Does God truly reward the righteous? And does he truly judge the wicked? And he's testing this claim, but this isn't some impartial investigation. This isn't some mere intellectual exercise. No, we keep reading, and what we see is that the psalmist is inviting us in to a crisis of faith. You see, in his eyes, the claim isn't holding up. Look at verse 2. It's as if he's saying, it says here that God is good, verse 2, but as for me, 
My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And why? Well, keep reading in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist is looking at the world around him, and there's one message that has become abundantly clear in his eyes. The wicked win. It looks like the wicked win, but what in particular does this look like? What does he see when he surveys the wicked? Well, first, it looks like flourishing. In verses 3 through 5, we see that the wicked prosper in all that they do. The psalmist describes the wicked as being fat and sleek. And in our own culture where we, you know, uh, value physique over all else, this might be lost on us. But in the day of the psalmist, this was a good thing. It meant that you had means enough to afford a life of abundance, a life of overabundance, a life of indulgence. It was good if you were wealthy enough to be fat, to be sleek. He goes on, and he says that the only pain that the wicked ever experience is on their deathbed. The first pangs of pain that they receive are in their death pangs. You see, they just aren't like the rest of us. He looks at the wicked, and they're elite. They're famous. They're indestructible. They're too big to fail. They, will, they simply don't know the pain or struggle or trouble or need that the rest of us have. But second, they look prideful. If you survey verses 6, 7, and 8, it says that their pride leads to violence, to foolishness, to wicked talk and oppression. But worst of all, it leads to rebellion against God. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. You see, they say whatever they want against God and about God because they don't fear God. And why don't they fear God? It's because they have no need for Him. I once heard a comedian joke, and don't worry, I'm not going to try and repeat it as a joke, but this comedian was joking about how atheism flourishes amongst rich people because they already have everything they need. So if you walk up to a rich person on the street and you say, can I offer you, you know, eternal life? Can I talk to you about heaven? They'll scoff and they'll say, really? The afterlife? I mean, how much better can it get, really? They already have everything they need. And so it's hard to find any need for God because when you are rich when you are too big to fail, when you are flourishing, God becomes nothing more than an add-on to the good life. He's an optional addition to a lot of things that are already going very well for you. And third, the wicked look attractive. They look attractive to God's people. You see, they're flourishing and they're prideful, but they don't just keep it to themselves. They try to lure in God's people in verse 11, they ask, how can God know, and is there knowledge in the Most High? And if you pay attention, you realize that what they're doing is peddling the exact same lie as the serpent in the garden, right? How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Has God truly said? They're saying the same lies as the serpent, and yet God's people are eating it up. They approve of these people, they follow them, 
And what's the result of this injustice? What's the result of this pride? What's the result of this rebellion against God? A life of further ease. A life of ever-increasing gain. It looks like the wicked win. So the psalmist takes in this picture and he responds in verses 13 and 14 with bitter resentment before God. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. It's as if he's saying, God, what is the point of pursuing holiness? What's the benefit? Because I do this every single day and I receive nothing in return. No, in fact, it's even worse. I try to be holy. I try to be pure in heart. And yet all you do is beat me down and rebuke me. I used to naively confess that you are good to your people, but now I don't know. And you see, he's angry. He's looking at the wickedness all around him, and he's filled with anger. But we need to be clear and see that this isn't a righteous anger. He says it right up top in verse 3. This anger is fueled by envy. Do you ever fall into a temptation to resent those whose lives seem easy? who seem to have parenting figured out, who make more money than you, who are more talented than you, who are more attractive than you, who seem to just skate by through life. I think we all fall into that temptation at one point or another. And we fall into that temptation not because of any righteous anger, but because we want what they have. They have something that we want and we don't have it, and so we're angry. And when we see that, we realize that the psalmist's problem is not that he wants to beat the wicked, but he wants to be just like the wicked. He wants to prosper just like them. And so he's in this struggle. He's full of this agonizing doubt, and yet he suffers in silence. He doesn't dare speak about his struggle because he's scared of what it will do to the young people in the temple. Verse 15 If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, if they saw him doubting, he believes that it would undermine their faith. It would bring nothing but havoc, that his doubt had no place amongst God's people. And again, do you ever feel that way? Do you feel like your doubt, that your messiness, that your suffering has no place in the church? That any sign of doubt is proof that you are actually secretly an unbeliever, that you secretly don't belong, and therefore you need to stuff it down, keep it quiet, and never bring it to the surface. Well, if that's you, I want you to see that even though the psalmist tried to keep it from the congregation, he tried to keep it from all these generations, right? God kept it in his word. He kept it so that we could hear it now in the church throughout all generations of this doubt. And it's a reminder that it's not doubt in and of itself that kills us. It's not doubt that automatically equals unbelief, but it's what we do with that doubt, right? It's what we do with that doubt. God doesn't tell us to stuff our doubts deep down where no one will find them. But he invites us to openly bring our doubts, our bitterness, our envy, and our suffering before him. 
You see, when left to himself, the psalmist nearly falls away from the faith, but he doesn't stay there. We see that turn in verse 17, that he takes these doubts, he takes everything that seems wrong, and he brings them before God. Only God can take what we see and then show us what we're missing, which brings us to our second point, what we miss. If you look at verse 16, it's ending on a dark and a pretty uncertain note. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's burdened. He's weary. He's been trying on his own to make sense of how the scales work in this world between the wicked and the righteous, between justice and goodness and all the rest, and he's worn out. He's dancing on the edge of unbelief. He's tiptoeing with it. But then, praise the Lord that we get verse 17. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. This is the decisive moment of transformation and grace for the psalmist. This bitter man, filled with doubt, doesn't run from God, but instead casts himself upon his Lord. And you see that this doubt isn't unbelief, because it's only when doubt lives in the darkness that it may ultimately end up in unbelief. But doubt that lives in the light, doubt that cries out to God in the midst of darkness, doubt that cries out for help, is actually faith. Doubt that turns to the Lord, even in the midst of that doubt, is faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so he casts himself upon the Lord, and God shows him a much greater picture than anything he's been able to comprehend. He shows him a far more expansive picture of what's actually going on in the world around him. He's given eyes to see. He's given a Godward perspective of all these things that have led to this bitterness and this doubt. And with this perspective, he gets hope. And he sees that despite what he previously saw, despite what he previously thought, the truth is that the wicked wither and the righteous remain. He sees that the wicked are lifted high, but verse 18, they are set on slippery ground. They seem too big to fail, but verse 19, they are destroyed in a moment. They're in a precarious place. I was talking with my brother yesterday, and he told me that there are a number of homeowners in California that have to evacuate their multi-million dollar mansions because they are built on unstable seaside cliffs. That any moment, these marvels of engineering, these testaments to wealth and pride and glory could wash away into the ocean in a moment. That's the picture that the psalmist is describing here. They're in slippery places. They're in dangerous places and can be wiped away in a moment. But you might be saying to yourself, sure, I get that that's true, but when do we actually see that happen? I, I kind of agree with the psalmist. I look around and I never see that comeuppance. I never see that justice come about. And that's where we need to remember that Psalm 73 invites us into a Godward perspective. The wicked may not wither in this life, but judgment will come. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. 
the psalmist is describing ultimately that final judgment will one day come. God's justice will ultimately be satisfied on that last day. And it's a reminder that prosperity will fail you if that is what you are placing your faith in. If your faith is placed in riches, in pride, in prosperity, in any kind of flourishing and not in Christ, it will ultimately fail you. And it's a temptation that we are not immune to in a country that is flourishing and blessed and has so many things that can make us view Christ as nothing more than a helpful addition to an already good life. But in the final judgment, we see that the wicked wither and the righteous remain. But how will this come about? How can this be possible? Because it's not because God is necessarily good to the pure in heart, right? Because we know, we look at ourselves in the mirror, and we know that none of us are pure, that we are all wicked. And so, therefore, the only way that anybody can stand on the last day the only way that people can be said to be righteous and to remain before the presence of God is if they are declared righteous. And the only way that any of us can be declared righteous and stand before God is because of Christ. He alone was truly pure in heart, yet suffered the greatest injustice imaginable. He had every right to expect prosperity because he was obedient to receive good things from a good God, but instead he received a cross for our sake. If anyone had the right to be bitter over unjust suffering, it was Jesus. If anyone had a claim to doubt God's goodness, it was Jesus. And yet we see that Christ always confessed the goodness of his God and that he voluntarily drank that bitter cup of suffering, that bitter cup of God's wrath for our sake to declare us righteous, and to give us a standing on that final day as adopted children of God. Verse 24, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Our Savior is ruling and reigning in heaven now. As he sits there, it is proof that we have been forgiven, that he didn't come for nothing, that he died on the cross, that he was in the ground, but he rose to new life. He is ruling and reigning now, and he has made us his own. He's our heavenly hope, this heavenly chorus amidst the bitter refrain of this world. And yet we see that the psalmist, the reason why he was bitter is because he foolishly thought that he could claim prosperity on account of his own righteousness. But Christ's work shows us that any claim to prosperity, to righteousness, based on our own work is foolish. It's naive. See, the message is not stay pure and you will get your reward. But the message instead is that we will truly and surely receive our reward on that last day because we have been made pure by the blood of Christ and adopted into his family. Christ alone is the reason why the righteous remain. His work promises that our sufferings will one day fade and give way to glory, and that the prosperity of the wicked will one day fade and give way to justice. The wicked do not ultimately win, and the righteous do not ultimately suffer. But how does that help us now? 
I'm saying all these things about the final judgment, about the last day, that the balances will be made right then. And you might be wondering, isn't this just hope deferred? Isn't this just setting aside any hope we can have now until Jesus returns? Not at all. See, the last thing the psalm shows us is that we have a God that shows us not only what we miss, but he shows us how to see clearly here and now. Our final point. He shows us how to see clearly here and now in the midst of this world. And the first thing that God shows us is the unimaginable value of his presence. The psalmist isn't relieved just because he gets a picture of the final chapter of the book. He isn't relieved just because he's gotten the spoilers and, oh, surprise, the wicked will ultimately fail. No, he finds relief because he's assured and shown that God is with him now in the presence of wickedness, in the presence of his doubt. He looks around, he sees the prosperity of the wicked all around him, but he can say in verses 23 and 24, nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Because of Jesus, nothing can separate us from God's presence. And that's what we confess in that great verse in Romans 8, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His presence is the only antidote we have against doubt and bitterness. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Remember that God has promised to be near to his people, not just individually, but corporately. We, are, we come before the presence of God each and every Sunday. That's what we are doing now. We are gathered before God's presence to be assured that he is with us, that he is for us in Christ. And God is reminding us, therefore, that we shouldn't be running from God's presence when we struggle in the midst of envy and doubt and bitterness. Don't run from God's presence, but instead run to him. Realize that the psalmist only found relief once he entered the sanctuary, once he came into God's presence with God's people. So when you struggle with these things, see it. Bring them out into the light and bring them before God. Bring them before others and cast yourself on his goodness and on his mercy alone. There is unimaginable value in his presence. Second, God shows us that the Christian life follows the path of the cross. Just because God is present, just because God is now near, it doesn't mean that suffering goes away. Talk to anybody that has walked with Christ for a considerable amount of time, and they will tell you, that things tend to get much harder as a result. And yet, we realize that we are not alone. It should be the rule and not the exception that we suffer for our faith. 
that when we confess that Christ is the only way for salvation, that we will be mocked, that we will be belittled, that we will be deemed foolish by the world. When we follow Christ, we are called, like him, to walk a path of death and suffering. But because of Christ, we can walk it with confidence in God's presence, knowing that he will bring forth new life out of death, and that that resurrection life is at work in his people, that every time we die to ourselves, every time we suffer, every time we look foolish, the Lord brings about resurrection. He brings about new life. He brings about confidence all in the midst of his presence. So we walk a path that looks like the cross, but we have confidence that the cross leads to new life. And then finally, God shows us where unbelief leads. We have the end of the story. We know what happens to the wicked. But it is a tragedy if that leads us to boasting or complacency. We should be weeping. We should be struck by the fact that we deserve to be standing side by side with the wicked. We're no better off. The psalmist says as much in verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And so therefore, we should look around and we shouldn't see the prosperity of the wicked, but we should see the peril of the wicked. We should see the danger that they are in. And we should see the free grace that we have been given in Christ. And therefore, we should run to those slippery places. We should run to those places of impending ruin and do everything we can to show them Christ, right? We shouldn't be complacent or comfortable that we know that they'll pass away, but we should live with an expectation. We should live with an overarching desire that everybody would see Christ, that everybody would know Christ. Even if we know that not everybody will come to Christ, we should live with that desire that people would see Christ, that they would know him, that they would find the same grace and mercy that we have been given and experience that presence of God in the midst of this wicked, confusing, and bewildering world. So in the end, this passage gives us insight beyond what we see each and every day. It doesn't make what we see or experience any easier, but it does give us perspective. We're called to suffer in this life. The world will often look unfair to us as we walk as Christians. But nevertheless, we see that God's presence is greater than the world's treasure. We see that Christ died for us to experience that presence, and nothing can take that away. And therefore, we can have hope. We can have comfort. We can have faith and confidence amid affliction. We can wrestle with God, come through the other side of doubt, and confidently confess that first verse once more with the psalmist, working through the complexity of doubt and angst and bitterness, and read that first verse through the lens of Christ and confess confidently, truly the Lord is good to his people, to those whom he has made pure by the blood of Christ. That is our hope. That is our hope in this world. So may we cling to it in Christ alone. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, 
we live in a world that seems so unfair, that seems so turned upside down, that seems not as it should be, Lord. We know that you created this world good, and yet we see that those who despise you fall upwards, that those who revile you live lives of prosperity and flourishing, and that those who belong to you lead lives of suffering, of reproach, of rebuke. And yet, Lord, we know that in the midst of our deepest sufferings is when you tend to do your greatest work. In the midst of agony and despair and doubt, you bring forth life. You bring forth faith. You bring forth the peace that can only come from Christ alone. And so, Lord, as we look forward to these weeks that we are about to head into, grant us confidence. Grant us an assurance of your presence and your grace and your love towards us. And may we rejoice in you. May we not neglect to meet with one another. May we come into your sanctuary and see with heavenly eyes the end of the story. See that despite how things may look here, that you are ruling and reigning now, that you are bringing about your kingdom, that it is growing and increasing, and that in that final day, you will deliver your people into glory that you will deliver us fully and finally from sin, and that we will delight in your presence, Lord. May this be our confidence, and may this be our hope. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final song of the evening is Go Now in Peace, and we are going to have a few people come up and help us uh, learn the song and sing it.
Dear people of God, loved by him, go out with his presence, confident that in a disorienting world that does not make sense, he will be with us to bless us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.